This episode of Bass Freaks is brought to you by the MXR Bass Compressor. The MXR Bass Compressor is a powerful bass comp that allows you to fine-tune your sound from subtle peak limiting to hard squash compression. It's a totally transparent comp to give you control over attack, release, ratio, input, and output. It also has an easy-to-use LED that allows you to meter your signal threshold on the fly. It's an essential piece of gear that no bass player should be without and is great for both live and studio applications. Go to jimdunlop.com and check out the MXR Bass Innovations Bass Compressor. Hello, my friends. Welcome to Dunlop Presents Bass Freaks. This is a place for all of us bass freaks to chat it up, gain a little insight and inspiration, and have some fun with some great bass players. I'm your host, Josh Paul, and today we welcome the very cool Michael League to the show. How are you, man? Good. How are you? I'm doing well. You are in Germany at the moment, taking the time to, to talk with us and hopefully inspire some people out there. How are you feeling? Good. Tired. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot what it was like to be on tour, but uh, good. Yeah, it's all good. How does it feel to be back out? Uh, I mean, to be honest, it's kind of like a mixed bag. I, I, I never really... Uh, I mean, you know, I've definitely done a lot of very, very intense touring, but it, um, after like a year and a half of not doing it, I, I think I kind of lost a lot of the muscles. So it's it's been kind of uh, like whiplash getting back into it. But um, but overall, it's been great. I mean, the, the band that I'm traveling with, Bocante, is awesome. You know, everybody's got a great attitude and and uh, and is making the most of it. So overall it's it's great just just like forgot how intense it was <laughs> i hear you man so i was i was watching um something on youtube with you where you were sort of discussing being off of tour for so long and and there was a beautiful beautiful piece that you had written um i i don't remember the name of it but it was inspired by being off as a piano piece and the mood and the vibe that you created was so beautiful and, mm. and cinematic and um i i felt that in the moment um i just want to say kudos to that it was uh oh, thank you i i wish i remembered the name of the piece but i think it's called probably right where i fall it was the first single from the my solo record awesome how did that come about uh i mean i wanted to make a solo record for a long time like for 10 years or something and um and I kind of started planning it five years ago, but it just always got pushed to the back of the the list just because there wasn't anyone counting on me to do it. Right. So um, but then when the pandemic hit, all my stuff got canceled and I was just kind of like stuck in my girlfriend's little apartment. And so I just figured like now's the you know, I had a MIDI controller and a computer. So I said, now's the time to to write this. And, you know, I mean, writing music during a pandemic, it's like impossible for that not to creep in. So I think a lot of the songs are maybe reflecting stuff that we were all going through during that time, you know. That's awesome. Um, you were able to stay productive and uh, <laughs> thank God for technology now. <laughs> you ain't kidding. Being yeah. able to do that. So yeah. you obviously wear a, a lot of different hats as a bassist, um, band leader, snarky puppy and composer, running a label and sessions and winning awards and producing. I, I just, how do you, how are you breathing? <laughs> How do you find time to breathe, man? Um, well, I mean, I, I guess the most important thing is just having people around you that are trustworthy and that um, take care of stuff. You know, I don't think anyone can do anything on their own, really. So, you know, 
um, everyone that I work with from the musicians to managers or booking agents or record label, you know, people or the festival that we have, it's like everyone's on top of their stuff and, um, cares a lot about why we do what we do. Um, you know, I don't think anyone in my community looks at what we do as a business really, you know, or, or as something transactional, like everybody in it for the, the, you know, the high of, of, um, of experiencing art and, um, but also everybody takes care of their stuff. So, it, you know, I guess that's how I stay breathing is because other people are doing a lot of the ugly stuff, you know, I mean, you know, the first 10 to 15 years, it wasn't necessarily that way. You know, the, the, I was managing and booking and making, you know, album covers on illustrator and, you know, doing everything at like 10%. Right. Got you. <laughs> you know, I know you know about that, but, but the, the, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I am finding that now, like, I think the pandemic was, a, was a bridge for me for sure. And that I've, you know, crossing that bridge, I'm feeling like, do I really need to do all this stuff? Should I really do all this stuff? Am I really happy you're doing all this? Stuff? I don't know right now. I guess you're catching me in a, like a, a very, maybe a midlife crisis moment. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I'll hold your hand, brother. We can get through it together. <laughs> there you go. There you go. We'll buy some cheap convertibles. Yes. Know, yes. $4,000 convertibles. Yeah. Maybe a 1987 Corvette might work. <laughs> <laughs> with three wheels. Yeah. Yeah. It's about the only one I could afford. Me too. I'm with you. <laughs> That's so great. So, um, Let's talk a little bit about your history as, um, did you start off on bass? No, I started out on guitar. Okay. Um, and then I switched to bass when I was like 17 or so. I played guitar from like 14 to 17 and then I switched to bass because there was no bass player in my high school jazz band. So someone had to do it. Yeah, know? man. That is such a common story with yeah. so many different people. It's crazy. Um, was there a bass player that you saw that inspired that change? No. No, okay. I, it was strictly because there were three guitar players in the band and, and they needed a bass player. So, um, but, you know, um, you know, I, I mean, I was a fan of bass players for sure. You know, I was really into Bootsy Collins in high school. I mean, I still am really into Bootsy Collins. But Me I, too. So like John Paul Jones and Bootsy Collins were probably like my two main, you know, my favorite bass players when I started playing and Jocko. And... Um, but then as time went on, you know, obviously becoming an actual bass player, I got into a bunch of different people. And uh, But you know how that is. I mean, you just kind of go down the hole and discover new people. But yeah, when I first started, those were kind of like, I was learning Led Zeppelin and Parliament bass lines, basically. Oh, yeah. That's awesome, yeah. man. Yeah. Um, do you have a favorite line? Um, what isn't what should never be by Zeppelin. Probably my favorite Zeppelin bass line. Um my favorite parliament baseline is definitely um, do that stuff. Ooh, that do that stuff. That's funky. like the baddest. Might might be my favorite baseline actually ever. Yeah, funky man. Yeah, such such great influences. I mean, really, that's encompassing so many different things at once. Mm. Both of those players. Mm. Uh, I think that's great. Uh, what was uh, were you self taught or did you take lessons? 
I had a guitar teacher actually. So, so when I was playing guitar, I was taking lessons with the guitar teacher. And then when I switched to bass, I just kept taking lessons with him. Oh, very cool. So I didn't really have like a bass teacher. I just had like a music teacher, uh, Dan Leonard, a guy, uh, incredible guitar player from Northern Virginia. And he was like my, you know, my life raft, you know, I mean, he, this guy just like was way better than I deserved, you know, in that moment and, and, um, built like helped me build a kind of infrastructure for, for thinking about bass in a, in a, in a musical way, not in like a bass guy way. You gotcha. know what I mean? Which I think, you know, you know, we bump into a lot of bass players, I think, who because there's only four strings and because you're generally only playing one note at a time, it's like really easy to look at the instrument kind of more like a like a drum in a certain mm -hmm. way, which I think is a healthy thing in a lot of respects. Um, and I still think about it in that way in a lot of respects, but a lot of bass players lack harmonic or or even melodic uh, knowledge and concept and, and the fact that I was studying with a guitar teacher who's like a master of harmony and melody um, immediately kind of like put that on my plate versus just kind of attacking it from this kind of like one note at a time thing. You know, I was kind of seeing the, the, the fretboard and the fingerboard in a, in a, um, in a wider way than I would have, if I would have been maybe just taking from a normal bass teacher or something. So so actually, I had to kind of like go back and learn the fundamentals of bass. I had kind of like gone on. I was like kind of more interested in other things and I wasn't really like a fundamentally good bass player. So I had to like kind of go back and put that in my pocket, um, uh, which is interesting. I think it's kind of like the opposite of the way that most bass players learn. Yeah. Well, you have an amazing pocket, uh, oh, by the way. So. You know. So do you, man. <laughs> Thank you, brother. <laughs> you Thank you, man. You know that. <laughs> Thank you, man. Um, yeah, I, I, I like to... Uh, I kind of look at it like um, playing the drums on the bass, but you get to you get to incorporate melody, so it's mm. it's perfect for for me. I feel like. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think you know if you think about the greatest bass players, you know there's there's always elements of melody and harmony in their playing beyond the the rhythm part, which is fundamental. You know, um, like if I think about Paul McCartney or something, you really hear the chord progressions and his bass lines, yeah. you know, or um, you get the sense that it's a person who understands harmony and melody who happens to be holding a bass in that moment rather than like a bass person, a right. bass owner. You know what I mean? <laughs> Hello, my name is Josh Paul. I'm a bass owner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean, though? I mean, I think it's like a, it's a fascinating thing when you see like really heavy multi-instrumentalists you know that it's like the music is in them and the instrument is kind of inconsequential you know what i mean it's like you hand them something and and the music is like the music does their music doesn't need the instrument you know the instrument's just the vessel and and i mean i even find that in people who don't even play music there's some people who are just really funky people <laughs> yeah, you that's know, and true. they don't they don't play they don't they don't they've never played an instrument in their lives but you know that if you handed them a, a you know a, a drum or a bass or a trumpet or something like you know in a week they would be doing things that other people wouldn't be able to do just because they are funky as human beings or they rock as human beings or whatever the the you know that music isn't some shit that just like lives in a bubble or in a vacuum that it's like it's it's a thing that's inside of people that you just kind of develop on an on an instrument but yeah i find that interesting very very interesting you by you saying that um 
you know, I can tell that you approach bass playing musically, you know, not just about chops or or mm. anything like that. And that obviously um, fuels your compositional skills. I think that uh, I think about bass playing as a com- like a composer rather than um, the, being a bass player who is like figuring out how to use that to compose. Like I, I, I think even before I was playing bass, even before I could play guitar, I was like writing shitty songs on guitar. Like before I knew what a chord was, I was writing really bad melodies or whatever. But the impulse was there from the beginning. So I think of myself as a composer before I think of myself as anything else. Gotcha. Um, okay. And I try to play that way, you know, when I'm improvising bass lines, if I'm on stage playing and, you know, I'm trying to think about what I can play that kind of like creates, um, contour in the context of whatever the music is in that moment. And that also creates kind of organization in a certain kind of way, you know, trying to like play in an organized way that allows anchors to get kind of set into the stage so that people can play around those anchors and feel comfortable that they, they won't feel comfortable that my boat is kind of leaving when they, when they're trying to load something onto it, you know what I mean? Um, so that's kind of like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm constantly thinking about that. Um, I would say that first and foremost, that's more what I am before I'm a player. I think I'm, I'm a composer and then I just try to compose on whatever instrument I'm, I'm holding. You okay. Know? So you're, you're definitely looking at big, big picture. You're looking at yeah. musically. Yeah. Very yeah, cool. I believe very strongly that the band is the first audience member. You know what I mean? That there's no um, excuse for someone in the audience being aware of something going on on stage that the band is not aware of, you know, which happens often. You know, sometimes you play a gig with somebody and you can tell that that musician is really only thinking about their part or they're like not listening to what the singer's doing or or whatever. But the audience is aware of what the singer's doing. And for me, that's like not really acceptable. Do you know what I mean? That it's I our do. responsibility when we're on stage to be hearing the whole picture at once and tailoring what we're playing in that moment to that. Even if you're playing like the most um, in the box, like, you know, uh, handcuffed pop gig where you're not allowed to change a single note, I still think that there's a great deal of potential for interaction and improvisation within that. You might not be able to play any new notes or new rhythms, but the way in which you play the notes that you have to play changes based on the way the singer's singing, the sound of the room, the way the audience is reacting, the acoustic, you know, all these kinds of things um, I feel like we should be aware of as musicians on stage, like thinking like producers. You know, I think about that often, like when I'm playing bass, I think about if I were a producer producing this music right now, what would I want the bassist to play? And then I try to play that, you know. That is some excellent advice uh, it's all about listening and, mm. and vibing off one another 100 yeah. percent. that's great that's awesome um what was your first gig what was your first like pro gig um wow i i don't know i i mean i think my like you know transition into real gigs was like kind of a slow one like i remember after my first year of i mean my high school band opened for like you know, Robbie Krieger from the doors or something at Jack's nightclub, you know, in Northern Virginia or whatever. That's awesome. Um, so I don't know if that's a real gig. My, you know, my shitty high school rock band. That's a Um, gig. And then I did a tour after my first, my first tour was after um, my first year of college. 
I did a tour with an old time, an American old time band, you know, playing acoustic guitar with two violinists and a, um, and a, uh, what was the instrumentation actually? Is it just me and three string players maybe? Um, the Who'd I Thought It string band. We went to like Nova Scotia in a car and, you know, slept on people's couches. And, um, but yeah, I mean, I think those were kind of like my first experiences in like the gigging world, you know, but yeah. I, when I was in Dallas, I played a bunch of weird gigs. I played with a Frank Sinatra impersonator. I played at a strip <laughs> club, you know, I mean, I played it. I did and like, you know, I did all kinds of weird, you know, I've played probably like three or 400 weddings and bar mitzvahs. And, you know, I mean, I, you know, steakhouses, like, I mean, anything, I've ch church gigs, so many church gigs. Yeah. I mean, just anything to survive, you know, I, I bet every single one of those has helped you, um, evolve in, and grow into what you're doing now wouldn't you say sure yeah i, don't, I mean I even, even the strip strip club club gig <laughs> probably helped you where you are right this second even in yeah, a that's, minuscule that's way I, yeah that's the one i go back to when i really <laughs> uh no no that was not i didn't learn much on that gig uh, um, were, i learned i learned i'll tell you what i learned is that i don't want to play in vips of strip clubs anymore <laughs> Um, that's what I learned on that gig. I never um, knew they had live music at the, uh, at the strip club. It was weird. It was like a jazz trio. It was, it was a weird. Wow. A weird gig. Yeah. It wow. was Dallas, man, Texas, you know, it's a weird yeah, place. Yeah. Okay. Um, but yeah, you know, uh, I, I think that you learn something on every gig and in a certain moment it becomes more valuable for you to take certain kinds of gigs versus other kinds of gigs. Like right now, I don't know that I would take a wedding gig because I feel like my time would be better spent practicing something or composing something. But when I was getting my stuff together as a, you know, young bass player, man, absolutely. You know, I mean, there's something to learn in every musical situation. You know, I wouldn't poo-poo anything. Nice. What do you practice now? What challenges you? I'm learning... Um, some different instruments. So that's like when I have time to practice, I'm not really practicing bass. Um, okay. I'm practicing some other stuff. Like there's a Moroccan bass actually called Gimbri that I've been practicing for the last couple of years that I really love. It's like the great, great grandfather of the bass. You know, it's like a okay. two stringed bass with a third string. It's like a drone, a high drone. Wow. Re really cool. Um, like wooden and camel skin and goat gut or sheep gut strings and really cool. What Super is it called? Beautiful. So, Gimbri or Sintir or okay. Hashjuj or there's different names for it depending on what region you're in but it's normally they play it in North Africa and Algeria and Morocco awesome um, yeah I love that instrument um, it's got a really different technique and you know it's like normally it's played in a context in which it's the only melodic instrument it's really? just like these metal castanets and that instrument and singing. So it's playing the groove, it's playing the bass line, it's playing percussion, and it's playing the melody. So I am yeah. writing this down. I'm gonna check it yeah, out. Do it. Yeah. G I M B R I is probably the simplest way to look it up. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Um, but it's spelled like a thousand different ways also. But yeah, I mean it's a uh it's played in Ganawa music, which is like um mystical Sufi um with African religious music, um, but it's it's you know part it's trance music, Kanawa music. So the instrument, I think, it has a lot, a lot to do with what it's very connected still to what we do as bass players. 
you know, I definitely recommend any bass player just at least check out the tradition because, um, and in a way, I mean, maybe it's controversial to say, but I think it's a richer tradition actually than the modern bass tradition because, um, because of the instrumentation, um, you know, it's very typical that on the verses it's playing like a groove and then on the choruses it's playing the melody. And then while you're playing it with your first finger, you're also like beating the, the body with your with these three fingers so you're playing drums at the same time it's like a it does everything it's like all the whole band all in one it's all in that one is, and yeah. and and um i think the closest thing you could compare it to is maybe like larry graham or something you okay. know like slap yeah bass playing melodies and stuff but i i uh i love it because it's it's like illuminating um a side of the bass that we don't always see especially that I don't do because normally myself as a bass player, I'm normally playing very simple fundamental things and part it like as a part of a large ensemble and um, to practice an instrument that's doing the opposite, that's playing as the only melodic instrument um, playing all these different roles is, is really awesome and different for me. So it's, it's inspiring. Very cool, man. How, so you have this vast knowledge of sort of ethno musicology what what got you into you know this world music yeah i mean i I by no means would say that i have a vast knowledge of of anything or nor would i put myself in the in the ethnomusicological realm my brother is actually a professor of ethnomusicology so i would i would well you're exposed to it and you're curious about it how about that okay definitely (laughs) exactly and and that's maybe what i would say is is um I think the thing that I have is just curiosity, you know, Okay. that I'm like really curious about the way that music works around the world. And whenever I have an opportunity to kind of take a deeper dive into it, I do that. And I think it's like learning languages, right? It's like if you speak one language, if you speak one language, learning a second language is difficult. But if you speak two languages, learning a third language is less difficult. And if you speak seven languages, learning an eighth language is not difficult at all. You know, it's like you because you start making connections. And my brother is a polyglot, you know, and and it's incredible to watch him learn things so quickly. And um, but but then it also just makes sense that you um, I think as people who live in the US or the UK or Australia, like English, native speakers um we put up a lot of barriers and not only us i mean italians or spanish people do too you know i mean whatever whoever does you know but you put up a lot of barriers about and make a lot of excuses about why you can't do things you know oh learn french like why i mean i could never do that you know what i mean or whatever or or play this instrument oh no i would never do that but then if you just like treat it the way you would treat anything else you just look at it as a process with steps and you got to be curious and you got to invest time and energy and, and, uh, passion. And, you know, you learn something today that you didn't know yesterday. It's not like a thing of like, I don't look at it as like, I have to master these instruments so that people will think of me as a certain kind of thing. Or I just like take lessons with people and then I do what they tell me. That's, it's like not, you know what I mean? It's not, it's not really a complicated process, I think. But, but also if you're passionate, you know, I'm very passionate about it. So I go to Turkey, you know, four or five times a year. I go to Morocco four or five times a year because I live in Spain. It's like a two hour flight to either oh, place. So, okay. you know, so it's, it's, uh, yeah, you know, I would just say like, 
I just treat it, I try to treat those things as like, um, as just not thinking that there are any barriers and just do the shit, just do the shit. Like just do the Nike slogan, just do it. Like don't think about why you can't do it or why it'll be harder for you than someone else or just like, just do it, you know, just take the lesson, do what the teacher tells you and you'll be better than you were yesterday. You won't, I'll never be a master of any of those instruments that I'm studying ever in my life, you know, like, but I'll know more about them than I knew a week ago, hopefully, you know? Hell yes. I love that, man. That's so cool. Um, let's see, what, uh, what do you think? I don't know. Three, three keys to success in the music business. Uh, don't make success a goal would be the first one. Okay. <laughs> I would say that if you take care of music, you have a good attitude, you treat people well. You know, if you create a, 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 a musician that people want to work with and be around, success will be a natural byproduct of that person, of that process. You know, whereas if you make success a goal, you might make decisions that don't um, have benefit like um, that, that you might make decisions by which the music does not benefit. If I'm saying that correctly, I don't know you how are. to say that. You know right. what I mean? Like you, you might make a decision that's like, oh, well, if I do this, then I'm more likely to be successful. But then you're like maybe doing that instead of making a decision that would benefit the music greatly, you know, and kind of therefore, if you want to have success making music that you love, you're kind of like shooting yourself in the foot in that kind of way. I don't look at success as a goal. I, yeah, I suppose success um, is different for everyone. It's defined differently. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, exactly. I think maybe that maybe that's the first advice I would give <laughs> of the three things would be define success for yourself. What is success? Is it being rich and famous in the music industry? Is it being able to, you know, make a living doing what you love? Is it be, being a person that when you go on stage every night, the only thing that people want from you is for you to be yourself? Um, you know, I, I think you have to ask yourself those questions because the answer to that question will create a different path. Absolutely. Um, so for me, success is that I only have to play music that I want to play and exclusively with people that I want to play with and that I don't need a second job to do that. For me, that's success. What it's more very, can you ask for? <laughs> well, I mean, a lot, I guess. You could ask for a convertible, you know. Uh, I mean, you could ask, you know, you could ask for well, a nice house and to be really famous and really rich. And But I don't, I don't, if those things happen, which I don't think they ever will, they will only happen because I did the things that I wanted to do. Okay. And for me, that's, those are the only terms on, on, on like, um, by which I, I would be comfortable with that money. So you know, it, it, it's, it's important because you recognize what those um, goals and points are and limits as well. So it, they're defined. So. Yes. Yeah, because it's very easy. I think especially if you live in L.A., you live in New York, you live in London, whatever. If you live in a major city where there's a lot of opportunity on a lot of different paths and you don't have the stuff very clear in your mind, it's very easy to get kind of like corralled, you know, and, and sent down a path that maybe 
looking at it objectively is not something that you want. You know, right. maybe you really want to be a certain kind of musician and you do one gig on the side and someone hears you play and says, hey, I'm going to offer you this gig that pays you a lot of money with this huge artist, you know, but it's music you hate. And you say, OK, I'll do one tour. And then you make a bunch of money and you buy a great house. And then you think, how am I going to pay for this house? I need to do another tour like that. And then you go to, you know, and then 30 years later, you're the biggest, you know, reggaeton bass player in the world or whatever, you know, and you have all this money, but you never did the thing you wanted to do unless you wanted to do that thing, which I would say, congratulations, great, you know, but if you didn't, you might be unhappy. And um, I think the music business is littered with musicians like that, that you get three or four drinks in them and they tell you what they wish they would have been. And I don't want to be that musician. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? I'd much rather live on the cheap and play music I want to play and 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 when I have three or four drinks like smile bigger then, I think I'm with you man I think you I'm know with you. integrity integrity um from your personal experience uh what do you think are some other career opportunities for bass players that people may not think about because I know you do so many different things keep yourself busy and productive mm. um, um. There's always Starbucks and there's always uh, Lowe's or whatever, but something different than that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think as bass players, we're um, it's our, in our nature to be supportive and to listen and to try to make other people sound good. And I think that um, quality is easily applicable to a lot of different avenues of the music industry. You know, whether that's being a music director or a producer or a sound engineer, mixing engineer or um, a composer or, you know, even like, you know, I started a record label and a publishing company and because I wanted to help musicians who were great but didn't have a lot of traction, you know? Yeah. Um, so um, I think all those things are are. are options depending on how ambitious you are I mean, starting a record label is very ambitious you know mixing a record is not as ambitious you know what i mean um or being a music director or something but um yeah i think there's a lot of different things i think you just have to look at what you like to do and and see what's available according to that because we're always going to do the things we love better than the things we don't love you know right yeah good advice man let's talk about gear cool what what are your go-to's oh my god what what, base, what base, department? Base, base department. Uh, vintage P-Bases. That's okay. my, my favorite year. One. I have a 59. That's like my uh, my my baby. Um, but I also love like, you know, I have a I have a 60s Hoffner that I love. Um, I like weird old bases. I have an Ampeg baby bass. Oh, cool. You know? And I like just unconventional bass. I have like a fretless acoustic guitar bass that a friend of mine made in Turkey that's like sounds like super crazy um i love playing baritone fretless guitar i love playing oud i love playing like gimbri you know like weird bass sounds you know just different sounds I, I i enjoy that a lot very cool strings jim dunlop mxr <laughs> baby you know all, all day flat flat ones flats yeah. okay yeah. yeah very cool what about amps mark bass yeah i've been i've been with mark bass for forever actually since i my, they were my first amp endorsement and um i love them i've got a, i've got a signature rig called the casa c-a-s-a oh, cool. um with, it's got like a very 
uh, visible, like gold grill on the head and the and the and the cabinets. And I love it because it's like super old school, but it can handle mo mini Moogs and octave pedals, and you know it's great. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about it? Yeah, it's solid state, but it sounds like a tube, so it's incredibly light, very 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 light. Um, it comes in four ten. 610, 810, and I think now they're even making a combo. Um, it's, yeah, it's awesome. I mean, it's like, uh, I'm not just saying that because it's mine. It, I, I, I love it. I mean, it's, you know. Well, you actually aside, play it, so that's, that's play, a good yeah, sign. Yeah, I play it yeah. every gig. I mean, I mean, it's, it, you know, aside from like a vintage 60s SVT, it's my favorite sounding amp that I've ever heard, you know. I mean, to be completely honest. Like I, I've never heard an amp that sounds better than, than a, a 60s SVT, but that's the second best sounding amp I've heard. So, um, and, and I love working with them and they're awesome. I also play, like when I play Oud, I play the Mark acoustic, uh, amplifier, which is great for acoustic instruments. So, um, I love them, man. I, I couldn't like, they're like a family, you know, and, and, and I really love that about, about that company. It's beautiful. Very cool. Any effects that you use on the reg? My two main companies are MXR, Jim Dunlop MXR, um, no, most notably the uh, vintage bass octave. Yeah. Um, and the um, bass octave deluxe. Those are like the two octavers that I always have in my rig. And the carbon copy delay. Those okay. are like my three main bass rig pedals. When I'm playing guitar, I also use um, other MXR pedals. Um, and then also Earthquaker devices. I really love Earthquaker. Like they're making out of Ohio, they make a bunch of really weird shit that I love. So I use MXR for like the kind of like, you know, more kind of consistent, know what you're going to get, like, you know, meat and potatoes stuff. And then I use Earthquaker for like in special weird moments, you know. Very cool. Very cool. Mm -hmm. Um, outside of music, what brings you joy, man? I love to cook. Do you? What's yeah, your, I love it. <laughs> what do you cook? What's your specialty? Um, man, I mean, you know, I live in Spain, so I've been trying to get into doing that. Like Spanish cuisine is so deep. And um, so I've been messing around with that quite a bit. And um, But you know how it is, like being from the U.S., it's like you instantly like start messing around with shit. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I can't do anything authentically. You know, I just like start and then I'm like, ah, oh, it'd be cool if I throw mint into it or whatever, you know, I don't know. But um, no, but I, I mean, I, I wasn't really ever good at it uh, until the pandemic. And then I like was cooking twice a day for a year. So I, you know, started to get some chops together. Now I love, it's like one of my favorite things to do. I, th I find it when I do cook, um, f fortunately, um, my wife loves to cook as well and she's far better at it than I am. Yeah. But when I yeah. do, I, I, I feel that it takes my mind off everything else and I just kind of like hone in on exactly what I'm doing at the moment. It feels really good afterwards. Hopefully it tastes good. Probably not all the right. time, but that's okay. Yeah, but it doesn't even matter actually. Yeah. I think, you know, I think as many things as we can do to get away from thinking about five things at once is good, whether that's reading a book or going running or cooking or playing a gig or whatever, you know, I feel like we put too much stuff on ourselves, you know, and I feel like the last year, a lot of people have noticed that, that it's like, 
there's just too much unnecessary fluff that's like occupying our our mind space and social media makes it so much worse because you know you're like knowing about things that are completely irrelevant to you you know like yeah you know, and you're getting hit with so many things, you know, like you see a post about someone who got murdered and then the next post is like a fluffy dog and then <laughs> something else is like a gig. And you're like, yeah. I don't need all of this information. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it, but because it all it all finds a home inside of you and, and, and you know, the, the, the apartment gets starts getting crowded. You know, it's it's crazy. So I think as many things as we can do to kind of like focus on one thing and be present is good. You know, Hell yes, dude. Uh, is there anything that you, you're doing or have done recently that you're most proud of musically that you want to share with people? Um, I just came out with my first solo album ever. Um, Amazing. Came, yeah, Round of thank you very much. That. Good job, thank, dude. Thanks. Good job taking yeah, the time to do it, man. Thank you. Yeah, it's called So Many Me. That came out on the 25th of June, so last month. Um, uh, and this year, I'm like, I set a goal to produce... 12 records this year, which was maybe a little ambitious. Um, I'm, so far I'm on schedule, but I'm a little uh, little sleep deprived, but it's all good. Um, uh, and I'll never do that again. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but I guess it's cool to say you did it once. Yeah, um, yeah and I mean, I, you know, Bocante, the band I'm on tour with right now, just made, we're making our third record now. and. Snarky is that Puppies your band? Yeah, it's, yeah. Okay. I have two bands. I have Snarky Puppy and Bocante. Okay, very and Snarky cool. Puppy's going to make its, like, I don't know, 14th or 15th record this October. So um, a lot of that, stuff. That is amazing. The longevity that, that you've been able to um, mm -hmm. just attain is, is really uh, impressive. Good job. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think that goes back to that thing we were talking about earlier, just about having good people around you. Yeah. You know, all it would take is one asshole to, to make me <laughs> quit. You know what I mean? Yeah, but there, yeah. there aren't any. So it's like, you know, we keep going. We keep moving, moving forward. And that's a cool thing. It's so great, man. Well, dude, I really appreciate you doing this, taking the time. I know you're tired and busy. Um, uh, I think that the information and, and your approach to different things and advice is really going to inspire a lot of people. And I really appreciate you. Thank you, John. Yeah, it's a pleasure, man. I'm a fan, so I appreciate you uh, chatting with me. Cheers to that. That's our show for today. Thank you for joining us. Stay healthy and kind. Spread love, good vibes, and inspiration. And remember, you got this. Follow your path and just play. I'm Josh Paul. Hope to see you out there sometime soon. And thank you again to Dunlop for making the show possible. And be sure to check out Bass Freaks wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers. <laughs>